Greetings, church and friends of the church. This is uh, the next episode in this series of reflections about how we can uh, more deeply understand ourselves um, and each other, and how we can be reshaped while we are together still in this uh, wilderness place. Uh, the wilderness being this metaphorical place um, where we are uh, dislocated. We are dislocated from what we used to know as normal, and we're not settled into. We've not arrived at a new normal yet. And so while we're in the in-between together, we're not monopolized by just going through the motions that are habitual and normal. Uh, but instead, we, we look around and we look at each other in different ways. And in that space, we can have an open mind and we can have a new imagination for how life can be better and different together. And so in this series, we've reflected on the posture that we can take, some assumptions that we have to make about ourselves, um, the natural tendencies and temptations that have physiologically evolved as mechanisms within all of us, um, and the need for a spirituality uh, that counteracts that physicality. And we've started to consider some of these uh, manifestations of these physical tendencies that show up in, in humanity, um, and we've, we've known them as these isms that plague us. In this episode, uh, we reflect on the realities and the danger of uh, rugged and unrestricted individualism, which is another common manifestation of these self-protecting, self-serving tendencies that evolved within all of us. Um, uh, rugged and, and unrestricted individualism, which is a really common fuel for the fires of these other isms that we've considered. Uh, antagonism, dogmatism, cultism, politicism, exceptionalism, colonialism, and systemic racism are all connected to a rugged, unrestricted individualism. So it's important to note that this is a reflection on a particular kind particular flavor of individualism, rugged and unrestricted. And it's not a reflection about how it's dangerous or somehow inappropriate to assert any sense of individuality. Far from it. It's a reflection built on the assumption that each of us is different and differentiated. That each of us is a piece of the jigsaw puzzle that is our life together in community. Each piece has a different shape, a different color, a different place within the whole. The assumption is that there is not a universally correct shape and color, and that all the pieces in the puzzle of our life together are not supposed to be exactly the same, and therefore interchangeable. It is good, and it is beautiful, and it is right, and it is true, that no two pieces are the same. And if that's true, then the question at the heart of a reflection on individualism is not about what the correct-looking puzzle piece looks like, but instead, what is the true nature of how all these beautifully different pieces relate to one another? So there's, a, there's an Austrian economist, historian, sociologist named Ludwig von Mises, who wrote that the philosophy commonly called individualism is a philosophy of social cooperation and progressive 
intensification of the social nexus. Such deeply philosophical language. So in other words, in my interpretation anyway, individualism is a philosophy of the different puzzle pieces working together, social cooperation, in order to connect themselves in all the appropriate ways and places until the bigger corporate picture of our life together in community is revealed. That's what von Mises names as the progressive intensification of the social nexus, that we're working together to create a whole, a picture that is us connected, that is bigger and better. In order for that bigger picture then to be truly revealed, all of the varied and beautiful pieces must remain uh, exactly as they are. They have to retain their individuality. There's a, there's a, um, a superhero's puzzle that I used to like to do with our kids. And, and in doing that, you know, we know that the, the piece that has Superman's left eye on it refuses um, either to cooperate and just gets lost and wants to be by itself, or if that piece tries to be something that it's not, if it tries to be, you know, part of Batman's belt instead. The whole picture is, is either incomplete or it's skewed. So this raises questions, again, which are not about the validity or goodness of a particular piece, but about the nature of how these pieces of the puzzle relate to one another. In developing um, a philosophy or an ideology of individualism, in which the individual has the right and freedom to be a self-realized individual, um, is expected to be a unique piece and, and not be forced to look or act like another piece. We have to be really careful to define that nature of how one individual relates to all the other pieces of the puzzle, how one person relates as an individual to all the other individuals. So we have to know and we have to acknowledge that these self-protecting tendencies that evolved within all of us, these tendencies to fight, to assume negatively about others, and to tribalize because that animalistic part of our brain evolved millions of years ago to protect us from predators, that, that those tendencies will tempt us in the, much, in the modern world today, the postmodern world today, to self-elevate, to seek to gain a greater place of authority or power than others, and, and to skew our understanding of God or the divine or the bigger picture in a way that uh, better serves us. These tendencies will tempt us to think that we don't have to concern ourselves with the other pieces or with the bigger picture, but just to focus on the self. Uh, French-Algerian philosopher Albert Camus wrote that there are still people who confuse individualism with selfishness. Gandhi wrote that unrestricted individualism is the law of the beast of the jungle. Pope Francis wrote that freedom and equality without brotherhood become full of individualism and conformity and personal interest. The temptation to understand individualism in this unrestricted and rugged sense 
where the individual's concern is only for the self and not for the other and not for the collective, this flavor of unrestrained individualism is often called egoist anarchism. So this school of thought originated with the work of uh, Max Stirner, 19th century philosopher. And according to Stirner, the only limits on any individual is the limitation of their own power to obtain what they desire without regard for limits related to God, morality, the state, or any other individual. We can hear the anarchy, the anarchist foundation of these assertions of individualism. When we hear phrases like, who are you, or who is God, or who is the government, to tell me what I can or cannot choose to do or to be. I have complete and total self-autonomy. I'm completely free to write my own story, even if that comes at a cost to you. This philosophy is don't tread on me to the nth degree, a free-for-all, survival of the fittest, a dystopia. On the other end of the philosophical spectrum is forced or coerced assimilation. This could be a Marxist communist system, or this could be a monarchical or authoritarian system in which the government or the ruler deter predetermines what the bigger picture ought to look like, and therefore also determines what each of the different pieces must look like and how they fit. There are still individuals and individual pieces, and they're treated differently according to their abilities or their needs or their proximity to the social circle of the elite or the ruler. But in this system, there is no freedom amidst the differentiation. All the autonomy, all the authority belong is centralized with the government or the authoritarian. And so somewhere between the unrestrained, rugged, chaotic individualism of egoist anarchism and the fully restrained, controlled, oppressive individualism of communism, authoritarianism, monarchy, is the delicate balance on the scale of philosophy of liberalism. So when we talk about liberalism, it's important to say we're not talking about a particular 21st century um, political platform of what has become known as the American left, but a political and moral philosophy that predates our nation, that was developed during the Age of Enlightenment and seeking to replace these systems of monarchy or state religion or hereditary privilege with representative democracy instead. The, this is the philosophy that is truly the heartbeat of what we in the West have come to know as our beloved Western civilization. The philosophy of liberalism is based on liberty, consent of the governed, and equality of the all governed before the law. It allows for rule and order, and so it's not anarchy or anarchism, but it is rule and order that is discerned corporately by the people rather than being imposed upon them. Philosopher John Locke is, is often credited as the key founding voice of liberalism and argued that each individual has a natural right to life, liberty, and property, and that no ruler or government or law ought to violate these rights. He wrote that no one ought harm another in life, health, liberty, or possessions. So in this philosophy, there's an acknowledgement of the freedom of the individual, yet it is not a 
total and anarchist freedom that allows for the intentional exploitation or oppression or harm of the other for the sake of the self. There is freedom and autonomy within certain bounds. And there are boundaries that are determined by the people themselves rather than being forced upon them. So in this philosophy, there's also an acknowledgement of the value and the worth and the natural rights of all other individuals. And there's an acknowledgement of the larger collective picture, the picture of a community living together peacefully as each individual participates within the bounds of the social contract. We can hear the influence of this philosophy in our founding documents as a nation. In the Declaration of Independence, we hear, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that, are, uh, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That we hear that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. We hear that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and their happiness. In the Constitution, we hear this. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. In the Bill of Rights, we hear this. Congress shall make no law respecting uh, an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or of the right of the people peacefully, peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. In the Bill of Rights, we hear, neither slavery nor forced servitude shall exist within the United States. In the Bill of Rights, we hear, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. And finally, eventually, it says, or on account of sex. Now, we know that these documents have been a work in progress, and they, they, did, they weren't perfect out of the gate. But in them, we hear this struggle in our history to maintain balance between the individual, the other, and the whole in these founding principles and documents. The right of all to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, a more perfect union, the establishment of justice, domestic tranquility, common defense, general wel welfare, no exclusion to humanation or, or uh, oppression based on the uniqueness of the individual. The freedom to report truthfully in the press, to gather peaceably in protest, to petition for change, and the ability to alter or institute new government in order to maintain this bigger picture in which all the individual pieces are free to be themselves, able to enjoy a life of enough and living together in domestic tranquility without their lives harming or infringing upon the rights of others. But we know this is a delicate balance. 
If our natural animalistic tendencies compel us in fear to self-focus and to seek the well-being of the self or the tribe to the detriment of the other or to the whole, then the balance tips. The more self-focused and fearful we are, the more our balance tips toward egoist anarchy. If we only view our existence through the lens of the self, if the only limitation um, on, on our rights as an individual, we think, is our power to obtain what we desire by any means necessary, personal or political, without regard for God or morality or the state or, or our fellow citizens and individuals, then we deny the reality that my life, my liberty, my pursuit of happiness is inextricably bound up in yours. If I leverage my power and privilege wholly in the direction of what I desire, then I'm going to end up with far more than I need to be truly happy, and you're going to end up with the inability to be happy. And when that happens, there is a lack of justice in the general welfare. It is a less perfect union. How have we been tempted in this direction of egoist anarchism? To live as though we have the natural right to all that we can obtain through force, manipulation, the leverage of privilege, personally or politically, and as though it is not a violation of the social contract of our Western civilization if our drive to obtain and to consume causes harm to others in life, health, liberty, or possessions. Is this why our social mobility, the, the ability for anyone to obtain the American dream by their own volition, is that why that's decreasing every year? Is this why income, capital, and power inequality are increasing every year? Is this why the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer during the pandemic? Is this why people of color are trying desperately to get their fellow citizens to see the ways that their lives, health, liberty, and possessions are unjustly lacking? If our natural animalistic tendencies compel us in fear to overcorrect for these tendencies toward anarchy. And in that overcorrection, there's uh, a mandated restraint and control imposed so that the individual no longer lives with any freedom. If we go straight from no boundaries to tight uh, and imposed boundaries by uh, the leader or by the government, then we are denying the liberty and the pursuit of happiness by the individual. Life is simply imposed and there are no mechanisms for altering or adapting it by the people. And this kind of life is not a pursuit, it's simply an obedience, which we must note for some may be privileged and others may be oppressive. How have we been tempted in this direction of authoritarianism to live as though it is not a violation of the social contract of our Western civilization if our leaders impose decisions that are not supported by a majority of citizens or dismantle systems that are supported by a majority of citizens or deny the inalienable rights of life, health, liberty, and possessions to some through oppressive and uncivil mandates. Is this why there's such polarity and aggression, such a desire among some to have their leader cause harm and humiliation to their fellow citizens who think differently? rather than having a true democratic process of collaboration and honestly representing the true will of the people. 
we can see that this uh, search for balance is playing out before our eyes, both in our nation and of the other nations of the world. We see fear gaining momentum, and because of it, we see more and more people adopting philosophies that are increasingly egoist anarchist. We see more and more th um, thinking more about the self than about a more perfect union with domestic tranquility and general, we general welfare. We see more having a disregard for God or morality, precedent, tradition, and their fellow citizens. We see more and more pushing back against the press and peaceable assemblies and grievances because they're seen as threatening to the tribe rather than as necessary functions of maintaining health and balance. We also see nations devolving into authoritarianism, which leads only to the restriction of life and liberty and happiness. And so if these fear-driven physical tendencies within us that evolved within us all are what want to push us out of balance, either in the direction of egoist anarchism with, a, with an unrestrained individualism that sees only the self, or in the direction of a tribal authoritarianism where, the, where we support the imposition of injustice on other citizens, then we are back to that place where we have to ask the question, what is it then that allows us to operate in our life together by something other than these fears and physical tendencies that are leading us astray? And the answer to that question is the key claim that I'm making in this series. That we need a different voice other than our fears and our self-protecting tendencies and temptations telling us how we live in relationship to one another. We need a golden rule spirituality to speak louder in that place within that tells us who we are and how we relate to one another. The Jewish spiritual tradition, the Abrahamic spiritual tradition, uh, the Jewish, Muslim, Christian traditions, they're built upon the foundation of the covenant made between God, Abraham, and Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel and so many more. God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And in the overarching narrative of the Hebrew scriptures, we read about their faithful, albeit imperf sometimes imperfect efforts to live in cooperation with peoples of other nations and tribes in this centuries-long journey of progressive movement toward a stronger, stronger social nexus, which in the Hebrew scriptures, the bigger picture that they talk about is the concept of shalom, holistic peace in which all live with a sense of mutuality and belonging in which all flourish. We see this healthy individuality in how Israel affirms its unique identity, yet seeks to serve those who are different in search of a common future of peace. In the laws of Moses that develop, we read, God executes justice for the orphan and the widow. God loves the strangers, providing them food and clothing. You also then shall love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Centuries later, this is Jeremiah reminding the people while they were exiled in Babylon, that they were not to disregard their connection to the Babylonians with a sense of anarchy, nor were they to seek an authoritarian in their own midst to 
impose force or oppression upon the Babylonians, but we're to work with the Babylonians toward a common future. As he says, seek the well-being of this place where you've been sent. For it's in their well-being, the well-being of Babylon, that you will discover your own well-being. And so, so instead of being just worried about yourself, an anarchist, instead of trying to, to raise up an authoritarian to oppress them, plant some gardens, build relationships, teach them a better way, and live together in peace. So I find, I have found in my life, this golden rule of spirituality in the tradition of Christian spirituality. I've said this before, for me, Christianity is not about the dogmatism. Um, it's not about an exit ticket to heaven someday. Uh, Jesus taught not, not um, as ethereal pie-in-the-sky ideas detached from our physical reality, but very much as concrete, fleshy ideas about how to politically and socially order our lives together here in this experience. And he taught things like love your neighbor, in his parable of the Good Samaritan, he reminded us that we are our brother's keeper. We are our neighbor's keeper, regardless of how different we are. He asked questions like, what does it profit for you to gain for yourself the whole world? And yet in that process, through that unrestricted and anarchist individualism, to forfeit your soul. This was his caution to the rich young ruler who came saying, what do I have to do to really experience a fulfilling and meaningful life? I've kept this rule and this rule. I followed this dogma and this dogma. And Jesus told him, if you want to experience the fullness of life, it's never found in the accumulation of power and money through rugged individualism. It's in selling what you've accumulated and giving the proceeds for the sake of, of the poor. It's this expression of generosity and kindness and mutual belonging the greatest and most true life that resonates with what is eternally good and true is a life of being our neighbor's keeper. Early uh, Christian John wrote that we should love one another. We must not be like Cain, who killed his brother Abel out of jealousy, seeking to acquire blessing for himself. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? Let us love, not just in word or in speech, but in truth or in, and in action. And by this, we will know that we are from the truth. Early Christian Paul wrote to some of his friends, Be of the same mind. Have the same love. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. The key question is, how do the individual pieces of the puzzle relate to one another? Ego-anarchist individualism is a rejection of relationship with the other. It says, we don't belong together. There is no bigger picture than just me or my tribe. This kind of individualism, therefore, sees nothing wrong with individual or systemic racism, injustice, violence, poverty, oppression, and measures any attempt to correct such injustices as wrong, as an affront to total autonomy 
and individual liberty. It's the confusion of individualism and selfishness. Communist or authoritarian individualism is a forced relationship to the other, a forceful jamming together of the pieces, however the leader or the government see fit. It says the limitations are imposed by the leader or government and the people have no choice but to abide by them. There's no adaptation and no reformation. We're each forced into our places and therefore forced together into creating the bigger picture that is not of our choosing. If there's systemic racism, injustice, poverty, oppression, it's because the authoritarian or the government has chosen privilege for some and not others. And some rejoice in privilege as their opponents suffer. But healthy and true individualism, it's the free choice of relationship. It's an embrace of the reality that our inextricable connectedness to one another is inherent. It's an embrace of the need for cooperation, the need uh, to love one another as neighbors, not just in theory or in spirit, but physically and socially claiming the responsibility of being our neighbor's keeper. Because it realizes that the goodness of our future, the goodness of the future for our kids and our grandkids is directly related to our ability to cooperate together in prog progressively strengthening the bonds of our social nexus. So if any of us are in any way tempted to live as though we belong to no one other than ourself, and that our life is simply a selfish expression of my power for my own sake, or if any of us are in any way tempted to prop up an authoritarian who serves us well while imposing oppression and suffering on our opponents, who we see as our opponents, then we are invited to humbly and honestly consider that this is a compromise of not only the Western civilization and democratic norms that we so pride ourselves on, but also a compromise of the heartbeat of every major world spiritual tradition, the golden rule, which has been the driving force in assuring both the freedom of self-realization and collective social progress in the direction of more justice, more peace, and the well-being of more and more of the citizens of this world. No one can argue that if we all treated the other the way that we would want to be treated ourselves, then we would all live together in peace. Who would choose otherwise for themselves? or their family. But in order for this to be our story together, we all have to participate. We all have to reject the temptations of egoist anarchism. We have to reject the temptation to authoritarianism. And we have to treat all others, all others, the ways that we would like to be treated. Stay home, stay safe. Wear a mask if you go out. Be well. Peace be to all.